My name's Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. It's good to have you. Good to see you all here. Uh, we needed to let you know that, uh, say this, today's the 5th, uh, in two Sundays on the 19th, we'll have our um, congregational meeting. We have one in the fall. Technically, it's still fall on December 19th. Uh, we're just a little bit behind again because of uh, COVID delay, but we're, we should be back on track next year. But uh, we'll present the budget for next year, and you will vote the our members will vote on officers that were nominated earlier in the year. Uh, so those are both really important things. Uh, so if you could save some time immediately following church on the 19th, and we'll, we'll move through that uh, as speedily as possible. The other thing that we wanted to let you know was that uh, for the past several months, we've been uh, trying to fill some positions that are going to open up on our staff and we uh, are able to do that by the end of the year, which we're really grateful for. Uh, Sam Shirey uh, is stepping out of his bookkeeping role. He and Allie are moving to Ohio next week is their last Sunday. And we'll say goodbye to them then. Uh, as he leaves that position, we're really happy that Nala Polio is able to come uh, onto our staff. Her and Taylor moved back. Uh, is she back there somewhere? There you are. Yeah. Uh, Nala's got uh, experience in this field, and we're really grateful for her expertise and that she's going to just pick up right along uh, in that position. And then also, for the first time, we have been trying to hire a full-time staff position. Amy is not quite full-time. Adding her was a big deal. And we, this year, said we need to add another big-time person to our staff and uh, sought to add a full-time position to do a combination of some uh, operations, communication kind of stuff, as well as devote a significant chunk of time to youth ministry because there's a ton of kids, and if you don't know that, you're about to see in just a few minutes when they all come back. Um, we had great interviews and applicants for that position. Uh, we felt overwhelmed with our uh, choices in front of us, but we're really excited to be able to welcome back Daniel uh, Lancaster. He's going to move back from Florida, and uh, our hope is that he's going to be able to be here by the middle of January. We need your help because they need a place to live, uh, and that's pretty tough to find around here. Uh, so if you know of any place, especially if it could be somewhere, Black Mountain, Swannanoa, East Asheville, those relatively close to here, that'd be great. Uh, so anything affordable um, and that could, they have two kids, they and their wife, he and his wife have two kids. But we're excited to have Daniel come on uh, in the middle of January. It's going to be big for our church. We're excited about what's coming. So if you have any questions about any of those things, come talk to me or any of the, the other elders. Uh, and otherwise, you'll, you'll probably hear a bit more on the 19th as we meet as a congregation. All right. Uh, this second week of Advent, uh, we will uh, be reading first from the book of Malachi and then Philippians in the Gospel of Luke again. It's Malachi 3, 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Our New Testament reading is from the book of Philippians chapter 1. I can get there. There we go. Starting at the third verse. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Finally, the reading from the gospel is from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region, Evaturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your scriptures, for your words spoken to us. We ask for your help, that by your Holy Spirit, our ears would be attuned to your voice. God, we pray that you'd help us, that your words would not just pass over us or move around us, but instead would penetrate into our hearts, reflect us, and bring effectual change. We need your help in this, Lord Jesus. We ask that you would help us and bring us closer to conforming to the image and likeness of the Son, to the praise of your name. Amen. The lectionary here draws our attention to the ministry of John the Baptist as is appropriate in the season of Advent, we're looking forward to the coming of Jesus. 
And we are being prepared both in the story of the Gospels to think about the first coming, but also that our hearts would be prepared for the second coming of Christ, his second advent. And so there's really no better figure for this preparation season, preparing for the season of Christ's coming, than for John the Baptist. His ministry is the one that we ought to pay attention to, and we will pay attention to him both this week and next week. We're going to continue on in Luke chapter 3 in our gospel readings as we listen to John's preached message But here in the lectionary text, we don't get to hear necessarily John preach. We're just being prepared for what he will preach. And the lectionary kind of sneaks in an ability for us to hear from two different prophets as we wait to hear from the voice of this great prophet that precedes Jesus. We hear from Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament as it's arranged in our English Bible. He is coming to preach uh, to the people of Israel after the exile and to call them back to a right relationship with God that they would, uh, in a pure fashion, follow the words of the God of Israel and that they would be prepared. The, The very end of the book of Malachi points forward to a day when Elijah would come back and would preach and call the people that their hearts would be turned to the children and the children would be turned to their fathers. And it ends with this, almost this word of threat, lest the land would be struck with a curse. So Malachi is here earlier before this very end is telling the people prepare for the day of the messenger of the Lord. He is coming for you. He's coming in advance of the coming of God, and he's going to bring this message of repentance. And Malachi provides one set of images for what repentance does. And the other prophet, Isaiah, will provide another set of images. And first, what Malachi causes us to think about, the images that he brings to mind, is that of purification. He is like a refiner's fire. He is like fuller's soap. And what this messenger will do is prepare the people by calling them to purification, the purification of repentance. And what will be the outcome, Malachi says, is that finally the people will be able to be before the Lord in righteousness. And God will be able to receive their offering as in former days, Judah and in Jerusalem. So the people are being prepared to be refined And the image here of a fuller soap and a refining fire is not exactly comfortable. It's, in fact, discomfort. And this is part of the nature of what repentance is, is this getting in there and scrubbing. It is the heating up and the boiling to the surface of all the impurities that are within you. And we're going to hear the way that John preaches next time. He can bring the heat for sure. But we ought to hear that in uh, partnership, in pairing with the way that Isaiah and indeed John's own father, Zechariah, will think about this ministry of repentance. In the Gospel of Luke, the writer is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, which he doesn't start from the beginning in this quotation, starts out by saying, comfort, comfort my people. 
And it's this long section in the book of Isaiah that God, after judgment, will begin the work of comforting his people. And there will be this messenger who comes to raise the valleys and lower the mountains and make smooth the road so that God will come to his people. Not so that his people will find smooth ways to travel to God, but instead that God will come to his people. And he goes on after this section that Luke quotes to describe it as the Lord who will come as the great shepherd and will collect his little lambs and hug them to his chest and carry them close to his heart. Luke points to this and says, this is what Jeremiah is coming to do. And this is kind of, if you paid attention to what Zechariah's song was telling you, is kind of in keeping with what John's father envisioned happening and predicting and prophesying what happened through his son. I'm going to read part of the thing that we read out for the call to worship. I know that we're not necessarily the most engaged right from the top, so I want to go back and bring back some of these words that we read. We should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he, God, swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. He goes on to say that the prophet of the Most High gives knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. It is important before next week when we read the content of John's message to hear this framework for what John's ministry is meant to be. Because when you read John's message of repentance, it's, it's strong, it's pointed, and it's direct. But if you don't hear the purpose first, you will miss what God is seeking to do, what he does do, the through the preaching of repentance. Christian life flows along the currents of repentance. And when we think about what repentance is, what God calls us to in the act of repentance, we need to understand what it is that God wants to accomplish and does accomplish through repentance. Because our natural disposition is to hear a call to repentance, a word of repentance. And we want to do one of a couple things. We want to either make it less refining and purifying than it ought to be, or we want to hear it through the lens of condemnation. In our day and time, the idea of repentance is only manifested in distorted fashion. 
We don't really have the right understanding of what it means that someone could repent. In a lot of ways, our culture is hunting for one another, for ways to show how each, each other, that person over there, this person of that other camp, has sullied themselves in some way. And when somebody is able to look upon their past and acknowledge that they've done something wrong, confess that they've done it, and said, I, I regret what I've done, I regret what I've said, we have no real ability to let that work work its way through all of us. We would prefer to play this game where we just call all those people over there to repentance. All of those people who are my ideological enemies, all of those people who are my cultural opponents, let's call those people to repentance. But when John is coming to preach, the prophets prepare all of Israel to hear this refiner's message that every single person is going to be called to examine themselves before God and to allow God to turn up the heat. It is all of us who are exposed to the refiner's fire. It is all of us who must be cleansed by the fuller's soap. We do not live in a culture that values universal repentance. We live in a culture that would prefer instead to wage a war of repentance against other people. If your first thought about repentance is, yeah, you know what? That guy does need to repent. Then you are not hearing what Malachi is coming to warn the people of Israel about. Because what he says is, who will be able to stand in that day? The answer is, you're meant to understand, no one, no one will escape the work of the messenger. You and I are called to have our hearts and our lives examined before a holy God. Now, we do not want to think along the lines of this kind of repentance. But we also, when we actually do enter into this mode of repentance, this mode of examination, if we ultimately go down that road, we tend to put a sort of distortion box over the mouth of God. Because there's a way that you can avoid repentance and live sort of in the, the contentment and self-pleasure of your own life. But there's another way to distort repentance and to turn it in to this vehicle for shame so that the voice that you hear talking you down the road of repentance is angry and furious and waving the finger at you that's exasperated and disgusted with what you have done. And if you're like me, that voice is very familiar to you. That you think the voice of repentance is meant to take on 
Maybe it's the voice of the father who could never express his approval to you. Maybe it's the voice of your friends who betrayed you. Maybe it's your own voice that can't help but berate yourself. And you say, that is the way that God speaks to me. And so when you hear the scripture saying that God is coming to make low the mountains and raise the valleys and smooth the road and bring mercy to his people and collect his people like little lambs, that is a totally foreign mode of repentance to you. And in fact, you may have grown up in church settings where if it was preached in such a way that God would call you to repentance with this tone of voice, you are trained to say, that is weakness. That is not the scriptures. The scriptures make you feel terrible. That's what the voice of God sounds like when he calls you to repent. It is vital to hear both of these things. That God is going to call every single person to repent. And he is going to do it to bring comfort to his people. And we live on either side of this dynamic and have the voice of God so deeply distorted that we can't properly understand how good it is, this good news. I was, I was in my class, uh, my Old Testament class, and uh, once I get all the way through the Old Testament, I save a day for my students to ask anything, to just ask any question about the Bible that they want to ask, even if it's just loosely related to the Bible. I, I actually, I make them ask questions. I make it a question on a previous test that they have to give me questions they have or else I'll take points off their test. Because otherwise, if I just wait for them to ask, they just won't. So I get all kinds of uh, silly questions and lots of really great questions. And what I hope that it leads to, and it often does, is a conversation within the classroom. And one of the questions that was asked of me uh, in the classroom that wasn't asked on paper was somebody who, unfamiliar with the biblical story, said, let me, let me get this straight. Do you believe that somebody who has done the very worst things can be forgiven by God no matter how terrible they are? Not, not when they die, but now. And I said, yes. It is the most outrageous thing to me. That somebody could do something so awful. The worst crime that you could imagine. And that God would just forgive them if they would but ask and trust in Jesus. It's infuriating to me. It seems wrong that somebody like that could just be released. And yet, what I can tell you is 
this is precisely how God has treated me every single day that I have known him. It is the most outrageous, audacious thing about God that even today, the very worst of us could be forgiven by God. When Isaiah speaks of the coming day, when he is speaking in Isaiah chapter 40 of the comfort of our God, he is not describing the raising of mountains and the deepening of valleys and the roughening of the roads. What he describes is the elimination of obstacles. Because repentance and what God does through in response to repentance is preposterously easy in so many ways. As much as the, the heat of the refiner's fire is turned up and calls all of us to an examination all the time of the depths of the conflict of desires and followings of other gods and, and false belief, as much as that heat is turned up, the response to the things that burble up in the heat of repentance is astonishingly easy. And I have such a hard time believing and receiving that it could simply be that easy. Because I naturally assume that God is like me. I am the opposite of this. I hold on to everything. I make it challenging for, for me to come close to people. I do not wipe people's accounts with such ease. I address my kids, my wife, and the people around me in my mind with such exasperation and frustration. And I just naturally assume that God must be like that, but more. And that is not the way of repentance. That is not how good the gospel is. My instinct, my inclination is to make it far harder than it actually is. I, um, uh, for the past, I don't know, however long it's been, for the past several months, um, I, I've been uh, listening to this podcast that maybe some of you have been listening to, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with a guy named Mark Driscoll who's is, I guess, a famous pastor. I'm not going to get into the, to the nuances of who Mark Driscoll was, but if you don't know him, um, this podcast sort of is like made for me. Um, I, I fit a very narrow demographic that for whom this podcast is perfect because of my age and my vocation. Um, 
probably, I, I don't listen to a lot of sermons. Um, I'm sorry if that's disappointing. I just, uh, I'm working on mine, and I don't like listen to a lot of things, period. I like quiet. I like silence. Um, and when I'm in the car and I'm listening to something, I probably want to listen to something that is not engaging. Like I just want to talk about sports or a detective novel, something like that. I don't listen to a lot of sermons. Probably, probably about f- uh, 10 years ago, Mark Driscoll, not 10 years ago, maybe a little more, Mark Driscoll was somebody that I would listen to, not all the time, but I would listen to, because he was a younger pastor. He, he's a really gifted preacher. There's really no, no two ways about that. He was really sarcastic and, uh, I don't know, funny. Um, he would preach like for an hour, which made me feel better about myself. Um, and I just, I, I listened to him for, for, I don't know, 18 months, a couple years there. And uh, I just, then he just sort of faded out of my life. I just, he went on the list of preachers I didn't listen to, um, which is very long. And uh, one thing that I think appealed to me about Mark Driscoll was how harsh he was. I realize that now, that some part of me has always believed that the best way to preach the gospel is as harshly as possible. Some part of me has naturally believed that this world is needs to hear some hard words. And then if you speak softly, um, that can't really be the full truth. And if, if you listen to this podcast, you know, what you hear in those sermons, that harshness worked its way out into real relationships with people. That's part of the reason this massive church just fell to pieces so quickly. Um, and I'm really grateful that, uh, that God redirected my steps and that he was on the list of people I didn't listen to anymore. But what I was struck by as they were sort of recounting and doing forensic analysis of the after effects of a big church falling under the hands of a harsh and angry leader what I kept hearing again and again and again was what if this culture had been marked by a spirit of repentance instead of anger? What if the people who filled that church, who filled filled its leadership, who filled its pulpit, were a people that could imagine a Jesus who would come to comfort his people even as he called them to repentance? How many of these relationships might have been restored if the people in charge were able to say with tears in their eyes, I failed? Instead, that's just a sort of counterfactual. It's only something we can imagine. But as I listened, I thought about us. I thought about me. I thought about you. And what I want you to hear 
is that the way of repentance is the way of the Christian life. And that if you think that a Jesus who would be gentle with you is not strong enough for this world, then you do not understand what Jesus came to do. Jesus does not need to get into your face and to scream at you and to shame you into better behavior. Jesus comes close to you quickly and smooths the road between the two of you so that you would have the habit of freely throwing yourself at his feet and saying, I need your mercy. The antidote to a life ensnared in sin is to understand that God has always seen you. He's always seen you. He's always seen you in the depths of your frailty. He's always seen the things that you hid. He's always seen the things that you hate about yourself. And he has decided to set his love on you. So we don't need to be a people who by instinct defend ourselves. We don't need to be a people who in self-righteousness look for the sins of other people instead of ourselves. We don't have to protect ourselves. We don't have to fear being vulnerable and afraid. Because God has seen us to the very depths. And has said, unequivocally, come home to me. The, the cry of the Christian life is to be perpetually looking towards the one who comes down the smooth road and to say, Son of God, have mercy. Have mercy on me. And you don't have to pray that prayer. You don't have to plead for that thing, wondering if he'll say yes. You don't have to plead for mercy because he's got the hammer raised, the lightning bolt in his hand, ready, about to level you. You don't have to plead with him and beg him and convince him to do otherwise. If you and I would live a life where perpetually we stand before a holy God, feeling the examination of our entire being before the blazing goodness of his holiness, and we would just say, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We would hear and experience the God who shows his strength and his power by extending his mercy and his goodness and his gentleness. If you are here today and you know that you are caught in the grip of sin, that you have lived all kinds of sin. That there are people who are sitting next to you, who are sitting uh, in front of you or behind you, who have been the victims of your sin.
and you feel the pressure and the weight of not just casting repentance at other people, but instead feel the examining eye of God on you. And you know that the refiner's fire has been turned up under your feet. You should respond to that feeling. You should respond to that sense. Because God absolutely does want you to feel all of that impurity, that dross, those things that would mar you, that would cripple you, that would imprison you, the things ultimately that Zacharias says are the enemies of your soul. God wants you to not escape that or to turn aside from it, but to stare right in the face of it, to acknowledge it, and to turn to him and say, Son of God, have mercy on me. And maybe today you recognize that you have preferred the God who would be harsh with you. For whatever reason, you would prefer the God who would seek to crush you, who would seek to shame you, who would seek to condemn you. And you have just habitually said, this is what God is like. Today, you need to be freed from that misidentification of God's voice. And in fact, that is a kind of repentance. To say, I have spoken wrongly about God's character. I have believed wrongly about God's character. I have thought that God was far more miserly and unkind and uncharitable than he actually is. I was wrong. I have believed wrong. And your response this morning needs to be the same. Son of God, have mercy on me. And what I want to tell you more than anything else this morning what I think that John would want us to hear is the answer to that plea is yes. There, there ought to be no doubt. God sent his son so that you would not have doubt. That's the answer to that plea. When you cry out with your need for mercy, the good news of Jesus Christ is the answer is God delights to pour his mercy on you and to pour his mercy on me. You and I, we may have a long list of things that makes us say we are unlovable, undesirable, miserable wretches caught in sin. And you and I are exactly the kinds of people that God delights to shower his gentle and kind love upon. And you and I will struggle to hold on to that belief. You right now may be saying, yes, I get it. This is great. I believe the gospel. In 90 minutes, you will find some reason that you will not believe it. You will find the habits of your heart take you to old and worn paths. And you will just by default say repentance is for those people over there. Or the voice of repentance is one of judgment and condemnation. You won't even think about it. And one day you'll recognize, oh my gosh, I'm back where I started again. 
And the prayer and the escape off of that path is the same one that we're talking about this morning. Son of God, have mercy on me. And the answer of God on that day and in that moment will be just as joyfully yes. He is not exasperated. He is not running out of his mercy. He is not running out of his kindness. He is not running out of his grace. If you find yourself for decades struggling to believe that God would welcome you home, you are the person that God delights to love. You are the person that God gently scoops up one more time and holds to his chest and says, comfort my people, comfort, because this is the way that God is. Not in this moment or that moment, but in every moment, because this is who he is. The good news is as demanding as this and as easy as this. And it's far better than you can possibly hope for and barely believe. People of God, this morning, would you repent and believe the gospel and let God shower his kindness on you? Let me pray for us. Father, we're the ones sitting in darkness upon whom the sun has shone. We're the ones, as Zechariah prophesied, who have been led to a place of peace.